listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. We're going to spend the next month hearing passages from Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's a letter in which you get these glimpses of Paul's simmering anger over what he sees as a deep problem in the young Christian movement. He's more than concerned. He's actually really quite mad. The issue at stake is whether or not Gentile believers had also to become Jews in order to be Christian. And for Paul, the answer was a definitive no, no. The full inclusion of Gentiles in the Jesus movement doesn't require them to convert to Judaism or to follow its practices. That decision had actually been made several years previous at the Council of Jerusalem. It's told in Acts 15. James stands and he says, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. But we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from whatever has been strangled, and from blood. What they're doing is they're setting out this really, really bare minimum kind of set of standards for the Gentile converts. It's just stay away from things polluted by idols. Probably means meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Fornication. Keep away also from the meat of animals that have been improperly killed. It's a big issue in Judaism and in Islam, of course. Keep away from blood, uh, from the eating of animal blood, but also the the touching of it. Now, the fact that, that that's all they required is a major stretch for a devout Jewish Christian community because their lives had been shaped by fidelity to the Torah. That's how they practiced their faith even after they came to believe in the life, person, resurrection of Jesus Christ. They still followed all of those things, and so much of it is dietary laws. So it's just saying we have one matter of sexual ethics we kind of want you to follow, and we have three matters of dietary law. Other than that, if you can stretch to meet us there, we'll flex on everything else, including circumcision, which was probably a considerable relief to the Gentile convert men. (laughs) The path to that decision at the Council of Jerusalem had already been paved by Peter, who in Acts 10 had baptized the first Gentile believers. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, he said. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. They're in, in other words. No requirement that they first convert to Judaism. That's already happening. But what do you know? It's now a decade or more later. Paul has discovered that the issue has again arisen amongst the Christian community in Galatia. Other leaders 
Maybe local leaders, maybe other traveling teachers like Paul himself had begun to insist that the Gentile Christians really did also need to convert to Judaism. They needed to observe the Torah in its fullness and they needed to practice circumcision. Not only that, but as this letter moves forward, we'll discover that Peter himself has begun to waffle on the matter. And that makes Paul really mad. Peter doesn't insist that the Gentile Christians need to convert to Judaism, but what he has done is maybe even more troubling. He stops sharing meals with them. He had shared table with the Gentiles, but because he now doesn't want to offend that group that's sort of pushing a a, a Judaistic Christianity, he stops. He just cuts off table fellowship because they're Gentiles. In Paul's view, that's appalling. And he calls Peter on it. So that's all the sort of the background. That's what's simmering in the background to what we heard today. The passage opened with Paul making a rather powerful claim as to his authority as a teacher. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, he says, that I did not receive this gospel from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm not making this up, he's saying. I didn't get it from anyone else. This is straight-up gospel revelation from Christ himself. The old walls between Jew and Gentile have come down. And then to give his position some real gravitas, he reminds them of his own strange story, of how he'd been learned and zealous in his observance of what he calls the traditions of my ancestors. How in defense of those traditions, he'd made himself an enemy of the Christian movement, zealously persecuting it. But God had other ideas, as God is so often wont to do. And so God, who had set me apart before I was born, he says, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. He's basically saying, I'm doing this, and this teaching is solid, and it's Jesus who told me to do it. Well, you probably know the story as it's told in the book of Acts, even in outline, Paul is basically knocked flat by the presence of the risen Christ. He's rendered blind for three days, and he's had to, he has to rely on the prayers and the guidance of a Christian, a believer named Ananias, in order to begin to get his life on track. Now, he doesn't include any of those details in his writing here in Galatians. Just he says that he didn't go to Jerusalem at that point, but instead that he went away to Arabia and afterwards returned to Damascus. Sojourn into Arabia isn't actually mentioned in the book of Acts. That's not a problem, shouldn't trouble us. Acts is doing something different than just a straight-up historical record Anytime Paul himself says something different about his own life and ministry that isn't included in Acts, we should assume Paul is giving the closest thing to what actually happened, right? It's his story. So he went up to Arabia 
after he'd had this experience of the risen Christ. We don't really know what he means by Arabia. He says nothing of what he was doing there. Martin Luther, Martin Luther thought it was a no-brainer. Paul was clearly preaching the gospel. What else would this apostle do? In Gentile territory, no less. That's what he was doing. Others have seen it as kind of an extended retreat, movement into desert country so that he can sort out what the rest of his life is going to look like. He had been a Pharisaic Jew, and now he's called to be a part of a Christ-centered Judaism because he remains a Jew. That's often called his conversion, right? The conversion of Paul on the Damascus Road. But Paul's own word for it is actually his call, his kaleo in Greek. He'd been zealously serving God as a Pharisee, and now God, the same God, had stopped him in his tracks, called him to serve in a whole new framework. It's going to take a bit of time to figure that out, a bit of time to make sense of what his life's going to look like, And besides, none of the Christians want to trust them. I mean, he killed them after all. It's no surprise that N.T. Wright offers an interesting angle on Paul's time in Arabia, particularly insightful angle. Bishop Wright sees Paul kind of echoing the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Elijah, who was himself a a figure of zeal in defense of the faith. Elijah had faced down Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen of Israel, who were importing all manner of corruption and idolatrous practice into the faith of Israel. And Elijah had done it with such sort of fervor, strength, and zeal that it had actually put his own life at risk. And so the zealous prophet Elijah flees for his life, goes into the wilderness to Mount Horeb, all ready to pack in his prophetic ministry and cut his losses. He's done. It was, he thought, totally hopeless. Now, like Elijah, observes N.T. Wright, Paul had been very zealous for the Lord, but found himself confronted with this fresh revelation. This is being stopped, blinded on the road to Damascus of a kind of a blind vision in a sense, hearing a voice and having his life knocked on its head. A fresh revelation that made him go off to Arabia like Elijah fleeing to Mount Horeb. Maybe Paul is returning to the Sinai Desert. Wright wonders if Paul was actually heading for Mount Sinai itself, to the place where the law was first given to the freed Hebrew slaves, going back to the motherland, in a sense, where it all starts. We can't know, of course. But Bishop Wright's point is this, that like the dispirited Elijah who goes and hangs his head at Mount Horeb, Perhaps Paul's desire was to hand in his commission, give up zeal as a bad job. However, like Elijah, Paul is given a new commission. 
A new commission. It ain't over, Paul. In fact, it's just beginning. Well, whether or not it was to Mount Sinai that Paul went, I do think there's something to be gleaned from Wright's perspective. I also think that the the fact it took Paul three years to finally go back to Jerusalem, the center of the Christian movement and the center of Judaism, three years it took him after his call to go back there. I think that's instructive. Three years before he can go there, three years before he can even talk with Peter, three years. Now, I'm inclined to disagree with Martin Luther. I don't think Paul was preaching in Arabia. I don't think it was a heroic thing at all. I think he was getting his soul in order, that he was trying to reconstruct his life, his faith, his way of understanding his whole world. And that would take some time. Take some time, some prayer, some study, some space, probably some agonizingly hard, lonely work. Everything Paul thought he knew about God now had to be reconsidered, wrestled through, and reimagined. There's something in all of that for us, too. We live in a world that tends to value decisiveness and action. Carpe diem, seize the day. Someone somewhere right now is bound to be posting that on their Facebook timeline. Just do it. Just do it. That's what the Nike ads told us. But sometimes just doing it is not the thing. Being is. We don't have to sort everything out in the moment. In fact, sometimes the most important thing is to accept our own need for time, space, discernment, waiting, being, and maybe even a little bit of hard, sometimes even lonely work. It took a radical disruption of my life, writes the poet Christian Wyman. It took a radical disruption of my life to allow me to see the sanity of this strange, ancient thing. Now, the disruption Christian Wyman points to was his diagnosis with a cancer that will kill him. He doesn't know when. It may be a year. It might be five. But it will kill him. That's a disruption. The strange, ancient thing he refers to is the Christian faith, or more specifically, Christ himself. Now listen to that quote again. It took a radical disruption of my life to allow me to see the sanity of this strange, ancient thing. Trust is all part of this, of course. Trust that when God stops you in your tracks, or when a new challenge, a new question, a new crisis lands in your path, It is, in fact, at the same time, a possible, possible new beginning. It was true for Paul. The great crisis of his life was his rebirth. In a different way, it is true for the poet Christian Wyman in his cancer, a cancer not given him by God to teach him something or bring him close, but through which he meets Christ nonetheless. 
Sometimes it takes a while to see what the new beginning is. Sometimes it takes a while of being and not doing. Sometimes it takes a sojourn. Maybe it's Arabia, maybe it's an internal one. It's all part of the story, and it links us to Paul. Don't just do something. Be there. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.